the Slaughter in May podcast. Welcome to the September 2023 edition of our Tax News Highlights podcast. I'm Zoe Andrews, PSL Council and Head of Tax Knowledge. And I'm Tanya Felling, Tax PSL Council. After a bit of a break over the summer, and I hope unlike me our listeners weren't too badly affected by the recent flight chaos, we have quite a range of news items to cover in this podcast. We will discuss four recent cases. The Upper Tribunal's decisions in JTI Acquisitions Company, Hotel Latour and M Group Holdings, and the First Tier Tribunal's decision in Wilkinson. We will also consider certain Legislation Day developments and provide an update in respect of international tax reform. This podcast was recorded on the 12th of September 2023 and reflects the law and guidance on that date. I suggest we leave the update on international tax reform to the end and ease ourselves in with some cases. Sounds good to me. Let's start with JCI Acquisitions Company on the Loan Relationships and Allowable Purpose Rule. The Upper Tribunal agreed with the First Year Tribunal's conclusions on the application of the rule, whilst identifying some non-material errors in its approach. The facts are fairly simple. A funding structure was put in place by a US-headed group for the acquisition of another US-headed group. As part of a nine-step structure plan, a UK acquisition vehicle, JTI, was formed to acquire the target group with debt being pushed down from the US. Around 40 million of non-trading loan relationship interest debits were then claimed as group relief. There is around 9 million of corporation tax at stake. Does this case tell us anything new about the scope of the rule or is it more of the same? Well, some might view it as broadening the rule to take account of group purpose, but I prefer to view it as merely clarifying the scope of the facts and circumstances that are relevant to a company's purpose. All the facts and circumstances surrounding the loan relationship must be considered, not just the transaction, which is the loan relationship itself. The Upper Tribunal took the same approach to the unallowable purpose rule as it did in both BlackRock and QuickFit. This does not require substituting a company's purpose with a group's purpose, but rather on the facts the decision to acquire the US target group had been made by the US parent. And so when looking at the purpose of JTI in being party to the loan relationship, it was part of the relevant facts and circumstances to take into account what the wider group was trying to achieve. So whilst it's the company's own subjective purposes, expressed primarily through its directors, that matter, the group's perspective is also relevant, as it informs the determination of the particular taxpayer company's purpose. The Upper Tribunal decided that the question, why is a taxpayer party to a loan relationship, requires consideration of why that particular taxpayer was party to the loan relationship, rather than someone else. JCI was unable to convince the first-tier tribunal, or the upper tribunal, that there were any commercial reasons for the acquisition being made by JCI, and so the unallowable purpose of obtaining loan relationship debits was found to be the main purpose for which JCI was a party to the loan relationship. It was fatal that the acquisition was parked in the UK, not for commercial reasons, but to obtain loan relationship debits. Both BlackRock and QuickFit are scheduled to be heard by the Court of Appeal next spring, and so it will be interesting to get the Court of Appeal's take on this subject. The Upper Tribunal's decision in Wilkinson concerns a different purpose test, namely the one in the capital gains tax reorganisation rules. If certain conditions are met, reorganisation treatment applies, for example, to an exchange of shares for loan notes. The effect is that the law nodes are treated as the same assets acquired at the same time and for the same amount as the shares. There is no capital gains tax charge on the exchange. 
Instead, any latent gain in the shares is rolled over into the low nodes. But this reorganization treatment does not apply where the exchange formed part of a scheme or arrangement for which the main purpose or one of the main purposes is avoidance of liability to capital gains tax. So what happened in the case? Well, the shareholders of a logistics company, five individuals, decided to dispose of it to a third party for around £130 million in cash and no notes. Two of the individuals were Mr and Mrs Wilkinson, husband and wife, who owned 58% of the company between them and undertook some capital gains tax planning. Essentially, the planning was to make use of the Entrepreneurs' Relief Lifetime Allowance, which was £10 million at the time, of each of their three daughters. The planning involved transferring some of Mr and Mrs Wilkinson's shares in the target to their daughters before the transaction. The purchaser's cooperation was required in order to ensure that the daughters could beat the conditions for the relief. And crucially, the planning could only work if reorganisation treatment applied on the exchange of their shares in the target for loan notes issued to the daughters by the purchaser. HMRC argued that reorganisation treatment was not available because the exchange formed part of the Wilkinson's capital gains tax planning, which was a scheme or arrangements with a main purpose of avoiding capital gains tax. The exchange for these purposes would be the entire exchange of all the shares in the target by all the shareholders, including those representing 42% of the shares and who had no interest in the Wilkinson's tax planning. The first tier tribunal concluded, rightly in my opinion, that the exchange did not form part of the Wilkinson's tax planning. The exchange was clearly part of a different, larger arrangement, the disposal of the target to a third party. The FTT considered that the tax planning was bound up in that larger arrangement, so it did not exist as a separate scheme of which the exchange could form part. Alternatively, the FTT considered that even if the tax planning was a scheme in its own right, the exchange did not form part of it because the exchange was wider than the scheme. In particular, the tribunal cautioned against regarding an earlier case by the name of Snell as authority that if part of an exchange forms part of a scheme, the whole exchange should be regarded as forming part of that scheme. The FTT considered it wrong to posit part-related subsidiary schemes where there was one clear arrangement, such as the third-party acquisition here, to which the exchange related. Having decided that the exchange formed part of a scheme constituted of the third-party acquisition, the first-tier tribunal went on to consider whether that scheme had a main tax avoidance purpose. It is unsurprising that the tribunal concluded that it did not. It took into account the size of the tax saving as compared to the deal value and what Mr and Mrs Wilkinson stood to receive and the fact that there was no legal obligation on the purchaser to cooperate in obtaining the tax saving, although it had done so, and that Mr Wilkinson would not have jeopardised the deal for the tax saving. Overall, the case serves as a reminder that the delineation of the scheme or arrangement is crucial to the application of the purpose test in the capital gains tax reorganisation rules. It also points towards sensible limits as to when one thing can be said to form part of another. And now for yet another purpose case, the VAT case, Hotel Tour, which brings good news for input tax recovery on services used for transactions to raise funds. The taxpayer, HLT, was a holding company which sold shares in a subsidiary to raise capital for the building of a new hotel as part of HLT's downstream taxable activity. It had incurred input tax on various advisors' fees in relation to the share sale. The share sale in this case was an exempt transaction, and this would normally break the link between a supply and a taxable person's economic activities. 
But following the approach to input tax recovery adopted by the Court of Justice of the European Union in SKF, as interpreted by the Supreme Court in Frank A. Smart, this chain-breaking effect does not apply where the purpose of an exempt or an outside-the-scope transaction is to raise funds for the taxpayer's economic activity. In such a case, the input tax on the services is immediately deductible, even if the taxpayer is later unable to use the funds for the intended purpose. In Hotella Tour, the funds had in fact been used to build the new hotel, and so there was solid objective evidence of the purpose of the fundraising. But what if the purpose is not achieved and the funds are used for something else? For example, if the plan to build fell through and the funds are returned to shareholders as a dividend? This does not switch off input tax recovery as a matter of law, but does make it more difficult for the taxpayer to discharge the burden of proving that it had the requisite intention to use those funds to make taxable supplies. The longer the gap and the greater the effort made by the taxpayer to use those funds in its business, the better chance it will have of convincing the tribunal of its original purpose to fund its economic activity. The right to deduct the input VAT on the advisor's fees would be lost, however, if the cost of the services were incorporated into the price of the shares sold. This is an interesting point. As the upper tribunal acknowledged, it would be very unusual to see the cost of the professional fees being reflected in the price paid for the shares in a standard sale agreement. Obviously, as a commercial point, a seller will be thinking about how much it will make from the share sale after paying all the costs, so as to determine whether the sale makes financial sense. But the emphasis here is on the purchaser's perspective. Has the price been ascertained by common share valuation techniques, or has the price been influenced by the professional fees incurred by the seller, which in most cases is unlikely? The upper tribunal refers to the price being determined on a cost-plus basis, a margin above cost, or for the costs of the share sales to be specified as a component of the price, which is not something we see in practice. And now for our final case, moving away from purpose tests. M Group Holdings concerns the application of the substantial shareholding exemption, and more specifically the question in what circumstances can paragraph 15a of Schedule 7ac to the Taxation of Chargeable Gains Act 1992 extend the requisite holding period. Let's start with an outline of the facts. An individual had conducted a trade through M Group, which was then a standalone company, and decided to sell up. Given past liabilities, the advice was to set up a new company for the deal. So in June 2015, M Group set up Medinet Clinical Services Limited, or MCS for short. In September 2015, M Group transferred its trade and assets to MCS, and in June 2016, M Group sold MCS to a third party. Except for the minimum 12 months holding period, the conditions for the application of the substantial shareholding exemption were fulfilled when M Group disposed of its shareholding in MCS. The question then was whether the holding period could be extended under paragraph 15a to meet the required minimum. Broadly, paragraph 15a can extend the holding period to the required minimum where the target uses assets in its trade that is acquired from a group member, where that group member previously used those assets in its own trade. The question here was whether paragraph 15a could extend the holding period back to May 2015, so back to a time when M Group was carrying on its trade as a standalone company before MCS had been incorporated, so as to bring a group into existence. The FTT, and now also the Upper Tribunal, decided that it could not. Paragraph 15a applies in respect of groups. Its purpose is to extend the holding period where a trade has been carried on within a group. So it could not apply here. 
if there had been a pre-existing group, if M group had already had a subsidiary prior to the incorporation of MCS, the outcome would have been different. The upper tribunal was unimpressed with the taxpayers' argument that this could result in treating two companies in economically equivalent circumstances, namely a standalone company and a company that has one dormant subsidiary differently. There is no general principle that economically equivalent structures should be subject to the same tax treatment. The taxpayer had also sought to argue somewhat valiantly that a standalone company could constitute a group for the purposes of paragraph 15a, given that there was no statutory definition of the term, and in some contexts group could colloquially be used where there is only one member. For instance, when dividing a class of schoolchildren into smaller groups, one of those groups could be made up of a single child. I should clarify here that this is not an example that I made up, but which, according to the Upper Tribunal, Taxpayers' Council placed much reliance on. The Upper Tribunal nevertheless concluded that, on its ordinary and natural meaning, the term group required more than one member, and it considered that the statutory context supported that this was the right meaning to apply. Overall, I think the first sentence of paragraph 80 neatly summarises the fundamental problem in this case and the Upper Tribunal's conclusion. The fact that the appellant sold its substantial shareholding a month too early to qualify for relief is not a reason to adopt a strained interpretation of the provision. For the taxpayer, this is regrettable, but it does seem the better view on the legislative wording. Speaking of legislation, let's talk about Elday. On the 18th of July, the government published certain draft legislation for inclusion in the Finance Bill 2023-24. But this did not include anything on the proposed reform of the transfer pricing, diverted profits tax and permanent establishment legislation, which is unsurprising given that the relevant consultation ended on the 14th of August, so after Day. The consultation stated that the government's intention is to legislate any changes in a future finance bill, so not necessarily this upcoming finance bill. Indeed, I would have thought it rather ambitious to have the drafting ready in time, in particular for the proposed merger of DPT with corporation tax, but I may be proved wrong on this. It seems likely that we will find out during the autumn statement, now scheduled for the 22nd of November, whether, when and in what form the proposed reforms will go ahead. A somewhat curious development is that the government has published draft legislation for a single merged regime for tax relief for R&D which looks quite similar to the current RDEC regime, principally applicable to larger companies, when it has not yet been decided whether the government wants to go ahead with this policy. The policy paper explicitly states that the draft legislation was published in order to keep open the option of implementing a merge scheme from April 2024, but a final decision on whether to merge schemes will be made at a future fiscal event, possibly the autumn statement. You may also recall that the government had planned to restrict relief for overseas R&D expenditure. Draft legislation for this had been published in July 2022, but during the budget back in March, it was announced that the application of this restriction would be postponed from April 2023 to April 2024 to allow the government to consider the interaction between this restriction and the design of a potential merged R&D relief. I could not find an equivalent to the provisions from July 2022 in the draft legislation for the merged regime, but it would seem imprudent to take this as an indication that the government has decided against introducing the restriction. And one final point on timing. Even if the government decides to implement a merged regime, which, as I said, is not yet clear, it may not apply from April 2024, 
as stakeholders have called for more time to get to grips with the new provisions. And now, as to international tax reform, everyone's favourite topic, or perhaps that is your least favourite topic for which I wouldn't judge you. In any event, the OECD published a number of documents this summer on the two pillars of international tax reform. Although some progress is reportedly being made on Pillar 1, particularly in respect of Amount B, a streamlined approach to the transfer pricing of certain baseline marketing and distribution activities, we will concentrate in this podcast on Pillar 2, as the UK has already enacted legislation to implement it, with further legislation to follow. This is an area where simplification would have been welcome from the outset. But the rules are based on the OECD's model rules, which are themselves inherently complex as they seek to meet the demands of many competing interests. Indeed, this is illustrated by the two sets of administrative guidance that are required to elaborate on the model rules and the commentary. A revised commentary on the model rules, taking in the changes made by the administrative guidance, is expected to be published later this year. The UK is, again, one of the first jurisdictions to push ahead with implementing the rules and to provide draft guidance on their operation. Going early on international measures has its disadvantages, as we have seen with previous international initiatives such as the hybrid mismatch rules, but also potential advantages. In the case of the Pillar 2 rules, it has enabled the UK government to feed points raised by business into the international discussions, and it does give business more time to work out how the rules will apply to them and put systems in place. But as the rules are still themselves being developed at the international level, and the intention is that the UK rules will reflect the model rules, as interpreted in accordance with and supplemented by the commentary and further commentaries or guidance published by the OECD relevant to the implementation of the model rules, businesses and their advisors have the added challenge of having to keep on top of the evolving UK rules. So where are we up to with UK legislation? The legislation for the UK's implementation of the Income Inclusion Rule the Multinational Top-Up Tax, or MTT, and the Domestic Top-Up Tax, or DTT, was enacted in Parts 3 and 4, respectively, of Finance No. 2 Act 2023. Both new taxes apply for accounting periods beginning on or after 31st of December 2023. Shortly after Royal Assent on ALDE, a further 30 pages of draft legislation for inclusion in the next Finance Bill were published to make changes to the MTT and DTT to ensure the UK legislation remains consistent with the model rules. This includes draft legislation for the Undertax Profits Rule, UTPR, which is a backstop rule to collect any untaxed top-up amounts. The UTPR is to apply from a commencement date to be provided for in regulations, but with effect no earlier than accounting periods beginning on or after 31st of December 2024. But the US is not happy about the extraterritoriality of the UTPR, is it? Certainly not. In fact, partly to appease the US, a transitional UTPR safe harbour has been agreed in the second tranche of administrative guidance, although we do not yet have draft UK legislation to implement this. The safe harbour would limit the application of UTPRs until the end of 2026 by effectively disapplying them in respect of the parent jurisdiction, provided that the jurisdiction has a corporate income tax rate of at least 20%, which would be the case in respect of the US. But US Republicans have introduced legislation to retaliate against jurisdictions that apply the UTPR. This is not expected to pass, but the sentiment behind it can be expected to remain and to influence future policies. But what else is included in the draft legislation in respect of the MTT and DTT? There are various other changes we do not have time to go into here, such as the application of the rules to partnerships and simplified calculations for non-material members. 
But there is a significant piece of the puzzle still to come, which is the UK legislation to give effect to the Qualified Domestic Minimum Top-Up Tax, the QDMPT Safe Harbour, set out in the second tranche of the Administrative Guidance. What did the Administrative Guidance say about this new permanent safe harbour? I had great hopes it would trump the global rules and avoid all that complexity. Unfortunately, it does not bring as much simplification as we had hoped for. It would operate to deem the globe top-up for the relevant jurisdiction to be nil, meaning that for the jurisdiction, a group would have to undertake only the QDMTT and not also the globe calculation. Without the safe harbour, the QDMTT is applied as a credit against top-up tax due under an income inclusion rule. It's obviously a good thing not to have to do both calculations, but the QDMTT calculation itself is not simple. For example, the UK's domestic top-up tax, which is drafted so as to be a QDMTT under the model rules, applies the same calculation rules as for the MTT, with some modifications, to calculate the DTT. In fact, the safe harbour can be seen as bringing in even more complexity because not every QDMTT will qualify for the safe harbour. Because of the greater latitude afforded to jurisdictions in the design of their QDMTTs, as compared to their implementation of the GLOBE rules, the guidance sets out three additional criteria that QDMTTs will need to meet in order to qualify for the safe harbour, which will be assessed pursuant to a peer review process by reference to the relevant legislation and its practical administration. According to the administrative guidance, the QDMTT safe harbour would need to be elected into, and the election will only be available where the QDMTT would have otherwise reduced an IIR top-up. This allows for a complex situation where a QDMTT charge is challenged, for instance, on the basis of its being unconstitutional or contrary to a tax stabilisation agreement. The guidance envisages that, where a QDMTT charge is challenged, the QDMTT cannot reduce the IRR top-up. So in those circumstances, the QDMTT safe harbour would be unavailable as well. And now for what's coming up. Feedback period on the directive proposal for a common EU-wide system for withholding tax on dividend and interest payments ends on the 18th of September. The consultation on tax incentives for employer occupational health investment closes on the 12th of October. And, this is a bit further in the future but worth mentioning again, it was also recently announced that the autumn statement will take place on the 22nd of November. And that leaves me to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please contact Zoe or me or your usual Slaughter and May contact. Further insights from the Slaughter and May Tax Department can be found on the European Tax Blog, www.europeantax.blog, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Slaughter May Tax. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.